Welcome to the Kohani podcast from me, Isaac Mwema. This is where we build each other up in the faith so that we can be a holy and priestly people. This means that we strive for and are changed by God's presence while also influencing others to be changed by that same presence. Praise God. We continually thank God for what he's doing through this series and I believe that we'll be able to dive deeper into the revelation of Christ even as we study together and I just to take our Bible so that we may go through the text today we are still at Revelation chapter 1 let's pray Lord may you be honored and be praised in your seat of heaven is both mercy and the grace that we need in our time of need. May the mercies be enough, O God, for the weak areas in our lives, O God, that the enemy will continually strike until he wears us out. So we pray for your great mercy, O God, even as we ask for your grace, that will enable us, O God, in those same weak areas, O God, that they may be recognizable growth and stability, a coming of age, O God, that your church might mature unto the full manhood of Christ. We thank you and we honor you for this morning. Bless the word. Cover every reading, every saying of my mouth, O God, and every meditation of my heart that may be pleasant towards you. Amen. We began last time by looking into the first eight verses of the book of Revelation. We were focusing on the delivery of the message by the Messiah to John, who up to this point is the last remaining apostle and the disciple of Jesus Christ, all the others having gone into glory through various levels of persecution. So, in one sense, the book highlights the glories of Christ and his church, but on the other end, there is the reality of an earthly kingdom of Rome that has rose to the height of its powers. Rome being influential in political, social, and economic spheres, of Asia Minor, having colonized various countries and instituting its laws and mandating even its citizens to worship Caesar and various other governors amongst very many pagan things that they established has become a nuisance, has become a hindrance to the church. And so we saw that John is addressing these things to a persecuted church. A church that is being urged to endure until the very end. We recognized, if we may recap just for a bit, that Jesus is both the author and the one that is revealed in the book of Revelation, and that he revealed these precious words through an angel to John, 
who finally um, disseminates the message to the first century believers who are an audience to represent us because the messages of the text are cryptic, they're mysterious, and they are futuristic. And they went beyond this age of believers. We saw that God was demonstrating his love for his church to lay down his plans and to show them what is to come. And we assessed the importance of us being bond servants as we are being called in Revelation chapter 1. That we voluntarily give ourselves to be bound to the plans and the purposes of God, even though they might not be a need to, but that out of love we make his plans our own. And so the words of Revelation have a direct audience of a people who are born servants of God, that are willing to make their lives not their own, but they have realized that to God they belong. And therefore God is giving such people the unraveling, the unveiling of his plan in the end of the age. And so John being the disciple that Jesus loved, as he said in, the, in his books, and being that he's the disciple that has stayed with Jesus the most, more than everyone else, has a unique revelation about what is to come at the end of the age. But that before Jesus unveils and unpacks the fullness of the plans of God as to what is to come and the security of his church at the culmination of history, he first reveals to John himself because that is what revelation is about. It's a revelation, it's an unveiling of Christ Jesus. But that if we may ask ourselves, maybe with our first few passages of today, um, is it that there is I, uh, uh, something that makes Apostle John to be maybe special to receive such a revelation? I think not. But I think that it is the fact that he is available. That John was a steward of God's secrets because he was found to be a friend of God. Because God knew him and he was known of God also. In First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 3, we are warned about head knowledge versus intimate knowledge. That those that have intimate knowledge of who God is, those that treasure his word outside the four walls of the church, those that do the extra even when they don't need to do, in order to know Christ and to know his ways and to be obedient and to follow him, that they are known of him. Jesus knows them personally. In other words, they are available for the kingdom. And therefore, God has come to a level of recognizing. They've come to a level of, um, deep, um, not dependency, but God can actually count on them 
for matters that have to do with his kingdom and his will and what he wants. They are not just there for what they want. They are not just there for their own um, spiritual entertainment and being appeased by messages that please them and tell them that they have a bright future and that they'll become millionaires or that God is going to intervene in their situations, but that they are serious about what is in the heart of God, that they may live their lives His way. Such people that have intimate knowledge with God are known by Him. Do you remember Jesus saying about the end of the age that He will actually tell some people that have tested the powers of the age to come, that have raised the dead, that have healed the sick in His name, that depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. In other words, they could have even been involved in some level of ministry, tested the spiritual giftings of God, but that in their own private spaces, they were never known of God. They never knew him. They were never desperate to know his heart and his ways. We remember the difference between Moses and the children of Israel is that one which are the children of Israel knew his works, but Moses knew his ways. One was satisfied with the miracles and that God should do this and do that. And so they had surface level knowledge, head knowledge of God, because they only knew him from the level of breakthrough and miracles but they never dug deeper to know his ways as Moses did. Remember the cry of Moses, show me your glory. And to see your face, the desperation of his cry, because he wants to lead God's people his way, God's way. And so Moses got to know the when and the why and the house of God. But the children of Israel remained only in the miracles. Do we desire to be the people that know the heart of God this evening? If we may go to the text, John identifies himself as a brother and a partner to this first century church in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He was in an island in Patmos. That is why he is speaking in this kind of language, being exiled by Rome, the Roman Empire, uh, being that Patmos was an island where capital punishment was issued to prisoners to be isolated from the general population, being that these guys were in western um, Turkey, but that Rome had already established um, its government there, and that if there was any level of ideologies or philosophies that would threaten the rulership of Rome, they are was a requirement that punishment, capital punishment would follow. 
And therefore, John is identifying himself as a brother and a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus because he is a part of the suffering of the saints at this time. They have tested the bitter waters of standing for Jesus against a culture that is against the church, against a government that is against the ideologies of scripture, against a people that have denied God. So he was there in the island of Patmos on account of God and the testimony of Jesus, meaning that he was there by virtue of preaching the gospel, not anything else. The justification of many preachers being in scandals today is that even the apostles were taken to prison, but that they were taken to prison for preaching the gospel. I really, really doubt that they are standing in prison for God's name if every other scandal has to do with sexual immorality and finances. Scriptures say that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was in the spirit, meaning that this was not an imagination. It's not an hallucination. Uh, this is not the hate of human psychology when it comes to suffering, that someone starts having uh, episodes of trauma and so they, they encounter psychedelic visions. No, he was in the spirit. He was praying. He was in moments of devotion before the Lord, prayer and supplication for the sake of the church, given that he is the apostle. He was bearing the burden of the people of God, bearing the burden of the church of Christ and his kingdom, though he was in chains. So he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Just see the spiritual discipline that is in the apostle. Though he was in a desolate place, there was no excuse for fellowship with the Lord. And that's why we are saying he was just available. It doesn't have to do with the fact that he was so special, but that we are being urged in scripture that when we see such heights of um, such heights and depths of encounter with men of God, like John and Elijah, they are like men. They are men like us, with flesh and blood like ours. But that God is showing us the potential if we gave ourselves fully to his plans and his ways. If we had faith in the character of who he is, he will vindicate us. And so, he was still worshipping the Lord in the Lord's day as he would with the other saints, meaning that this was a Sunday, but he was still maintaining his spiritual discipline. He was just available for God. Do you know why Jesus would reveal to him the fullness of his plans for the end of the age? He was there. He was just right there. Make yourself available before the throne. You'll be amazed by the things and the secrets and the mysteries that God will unveil unto you. So John hears hears a loud voice as if it is a trumpet telling him to write the words that he's about to uh, to write what he's about to see in a book to the seven churches which we saw represent the completeness of the entirety of the global church. And so that will be the focus of our discussion 
that what we are about to see is the character of Christ revealed by what he has worn and what are parts of his body uh, in that vision that will purify an unholy bride, that the integrity of his character is enough for an unholy bride to purify her and to ready her for what is to come and to make her ready to go into eternal glory where she will meet the Father. So we will dive straight into it. Then I turned and, uh, to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, John saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands there was one like a son of man. Praise the Lord. Do you know what the golden lampstands represent? It is what he said at the end of this chapter. They represent the seven churches. Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven churches. I don't know how I can make you excited for that. Though she is unclean, though a prostitute, though she chooses her way sometimes and she looks like when she said yes to his groom, she was not serious. Though unfaithful, Jesus still chooses to identify himself with his bride. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. I am not unfolding the fullness of my will without my church. That is what he's saying. I am standing in the midst of her. And she is a part of me. I died for her. I bled for her. And I want her in my eternal dominion and glory. That I am not going to establish my eternal kingdom without her. This is covenantal. It shows the, the, the passion of the Savior to stick with his bride unto the end. To cleanse her and to make her to be holy before the Father. He is standing in the midst of the golden lampstands. The phrase son of man we know is a reference from Daniel being that Daniel referred to the Messiah through the coming Messiah who was Jesus as the son of man being the one that will take the ultimate dominion and glory and power. At the end of the age when the earth will be renewed and also the heavens. So he was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The long robe, of course, indicating aspects of his priesthood, but also that he is a judge. Also judges used to wear long robes in the Hebraic culture. So this means that he is a high priest together with being a king because the golden sash was um, familiar with high priests, that they would wear a sash around their chest uh, to represent their high priest duty. And so 
Jesus is revealing that in his resurrected glory, he has come to a place of rulership and authority. That this is a righteous king. This is a faithful judge. And that he is coming to take what is his. He is coming to execute his judgments and to bring holiness on the earth. That yes, he's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of holiness. And that he's going to fulfill his holy plan to judge the evil that is on the earth. While at the same time, we see his priestly nature. He is a king and a priest as David was. That's why he is the root of Jesse. As it was prophesied, that Jesus takes his high priest function seriously. That is why he is still wearing his sash around his waist. As the book of Hebrews says that as he was here, he would continuously plead in tears before God. Praying, the lifestyle of prayer and supplication identified the ministry of Christ. And even as he was elevated as a high priest in the temple that was not made by human hands, our matters are safe in his hand. Is there anything that is concerning you? Find comfort in the fact that Jesus takes his high priest duty seriously. He's wrapping the sash around his waist to indicate that the robe will not be loose. That was what the sash would do. It would tighten the robe so that it would not be loose and, and therefore to look casual. Meaning that he is there in the office of a high priest and he is taking it seriously. That he in heaven takes the matters that concern us, the matters of our lives to heart and he's supplicating before the Lord God Almighty presenting our needs and the cares of his church. And so these two, the long robe and the golden sash represent um, the status of the risen Messiah in that he is different right now from how he left the earth uh, of course, he left the earth with a resurrected body, but now he has ascended and these, there are rewards that are given of him in the heavens and that there is a glory that is dispensed unto him by virtue of his obedience on the cross and that he has conquered the evil one. The golden sash, more especially to us, may mean the guard of truth that we are supposed to wear also us. That just like he takes his high priest office seriously, we should also take our priesthood seriously to wear the truth around our chests. Not to be casual about this walk of faith. We continue, the hairs of, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. This is speaking of the divine wisdom that is in him. We saw that Jesus grew in wisdom while on earth, but that in his resurrected glory, he is the embodiment of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is in Christ that he trusts will make sure the church will wed through the murky waters 
of the end of the age through the storms and the and 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 and, and the winds that are coming that despite all that is happening god is trusting not only just in his um in him being the king over his church and being the priest over his church but that also in his eternal divine wisdom to equip the church to know just what to do there is a wisdom that confounds the mouth of the enemy that god has said as it is in the book of psalms that he has given his wisdom to babes to shut the mouth of the enemy that despite religious persecution and a culture that does not respect the ideals of scripture that there is a wisdom that can come upon the children of god from christ to make them to be set apart that daniel in a babylonian culture had an excellent spirit to the level that his accusers had nothing against him there's a wisdom that he walked in there's a wisdom that joseph had on him there's a wisdom that christ even on the earth had on him that the people recognize that this is different though they may not agree with it but they may sense that there's something heavenly here in the way you walk in the way you do things in the way that you talk christ trusts in the wisdom of his character to help the church to wade through the trickiness of this age his eyes were like flame of fire this means that he sees through his church christ is trusting his flaming eye to see through his church to see through any deceit to see through any manis and guile that he may remove whatever is impure in her he also trusts in his glorious triumph that he is given over his enemies because he says that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a surface and his voice was like the roar of many waters but let's focus on the burnished bronze his feet that are refined in a furnace are uh, refined in a furnace this speaks of his triumph over his enemies we are going to see that Christ is not even afraid of establishing his church before the very old synagogue of Satan that's what he told Peter also that you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it to be more incise about that scripture where they were standing was the place which was called the gates of hell it was a place that was attributed to deep witchcraft and sorcery and demonic worship and that is the place where they were speaking around that region and that Jesus was not afraid to tell Peter that I will build my own church here right here before the face of my enemies and in the book of revelation especially to the letters to the churches we are going to see that Christ is not sympathetic about planting his church in places that are synagogues of satan the places where satan's throne very on throne is there that is where god plants his church why he trusts in the integrity of his resurrected triumph over his enemies that god can vindicate his church before the mightiest of his enemies he is going to use babies to defeat this great enemy just as he used a small david 
to defeat the, the Goliath, it shows the method of God in using things that are weak, things that the enemy would despise to defeat his enemy ultimately. His voice was like the roar of many waters, despite there being a lot of voices and noise of culture. Rome being the epitome of wealth and, 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 and culture and luxury. Having color and horses and, and buildings and architecture. And yet at the same time being the hate of human intellect and poetry and, and, and being that they had um, political conquest and they control economies and that they would influence the masses to follow ideologies that are against God. So many noises just as are there today. But God is trusting in the loudness of his voice to speak over the other voices. That if we would incline to him as a church, God is saying that my voice would be loud and clear as the roar of many waters. If you've ever been to a mighty waterfall or a mighty river that is flowing from a mountain, you understand what this is. Just a mighty gushing of water that produces this overwhelming sound that Christ is able to sound like that in the midst of the noises of culture and society and even a church itself that is compromised, that he can be clear. Hallelujah. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We're going to see that these represent the seven angels to the churches. Um, we might argue that these are men, being that they are pastors, because the letters were being written to the angels to the seven churches. Or that this has a spiritual connotation also, being that there are actual angels that are given over regions towards churches. But that at the end of the day, we can all come to the same conclusion that the seven stars, which are the seven angels to the churches, represent the spiritual authorities over the church. There is a spiritual authority that is given over a church to dispense the decrees of the mighty king. And so Jesus holds them in his right hand, which is his hand of authority, that he is ready and willing to say anything to his church at any time that he would dispense his angel to speak to them, to speak words of his will, words that are seasoned, to speak the full plan of what he wants to do, to rebuke whenever he's ready, to change their hearts whenever he wants to, to, to identify an issue and a problem and adjustments here and there. But that if is, that is if the church would listen, but that Christ himself has dispensed enough spiritual authority for our growth and our maturity, and that it shows his concern over the issues of the church, that we can trust that he has, has, he has our affairs in his heart. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, or God trusts in the integrity of his word. It is sharp and it is two-edged, meaning that he's going to pierce on every side. It will rebuke and comfort it will challenge and encourage. It will make us to feel uh, emotionally unpleased on one end, being that it will tell us the truth 
but it will also come in love. It is a sharp two-edged sword. It is not the small dagger or the small knife that we have that is one edge today that we try to pierce this culture. Today, know but that there is a sharp and a two-edged sword that will go through the bone and the marrow, that will go through the dividing asunder and make sure that his bride is readily prepared and transformed into his will. His face was like the sun that is shining in its full strength. Despite things that were shining around them, culture and society and everything, and the allure of wealth and prestige that is in the world, that Christ is able to shine as bright as the sun in its full strength, that the church may behold of him, that the church may turn their eyes unto Jesus and to focus on him. So Christ trusted the integrity of who he is in bringing the completeness of the bride at the end of the age, his kingship and his high priesthood to deal with their hearts, his wisdom to conform them to his ways, his eyes that will see through every deceit that is in them and to correct them, his feet that are like bronze to triumph, to triumph over enemies and to give them spiritual conquest, his voice that is like many waters that will speak over every other voices, his right hand holding the seven stars, meaning that he is willing to speak to the church in season and that his mouth has a two-edged sword, which is the word of God, that is able to conform her and transform her and to deal with her deeply and his face that is like a shining sun to bring her to full focus of who he is. We'll conclude. John falls on his feet as though dead. I don't know how overwhelming the presence of Christ is, but I remember in a dream that I had one time, it was it was a dream that I can't forget. But it's as if I saw a, just a semblance, a resemblance of the Lord from afar, and I could not stand it. It's, a, it's an overwhelming presence. This was a long time ago. It's an overwhelming presence. Everyone that was standing close to me could not lift their heads. And neither could I even see how he looks. But I could just tell that he's there. He's just there. But he laid his hands on John and told him, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. He says words that are to encourage the persecuted church that I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Meaning that death is not even to be a concern to them. But that he himself has the keys of death and Hades. But it is also to indicate the victories of Christ on the cross. Being that Satan tricked Adam into taking his dominion. Do you remember that Adam was given dominion? Over the whole earth in Genesis. But that the devil came with the trick of half empty, half full. Because that is how he always plays, plays his tricks. To try and tell Eve 
that she is not like God, yet she is, so that she may do something to become like God. That is the trick that the enemy is trying to use to challenge our identity, to make us feel that there are eight steps to becoming something. That's why the gospel of self-help is just false. The books on the Christian shelves that are about self and eight steps to enriching yourself and eight steps to this and what and, and what not. It is a trick and a doctrine of the enemy combined with the secular culture to make people feel that if they do such and such a thing, then their lives will be significantly better or that their lives would be in such and such a way or that they would know themselves better. They would have self-awareness. And yet, what those people fail to identify is the potential that God has already put in many of us. They don't speak about unlocking what is inside us yet, but they'll make us to feel like we're insufficient and we need one or two or three things, which will be their marketing strategy so that we buy more of their books, buy more of their courses, be addicted and be subscribed to what they'll be telling us and to be dependent on them. And yet, when we assess it, we already have it in some way or another. And so... That was how the enemy tricked Adam and Eve and took their dominion by telling them that they are not like God, but that we see that Christ has taken back the dominion. He has taken back the keys of death and Hades here. There's nothing original with the devil. Anything that he has, he has, he has stolen. He steals the dominion of men up to today. We willfully give it to him especially when it comes to us with lies about our past, with the fear of the future, anxiety over the issues of our present, we are giving it to him. We are laying it to him. We are dispensing our authorities to him. He can smell the energy that is in our hearts that we are doubtful, we are resentful, we are ashamed, we are guilty. There are familiar spirits that can smell that from afar and won't respect your worship. It won't change them or move them from bring, being principalities over that region. But find a child of God that has come to the discovery of who they are. Oh, find a child of God that though suppressed, though it looks like things are not going in their favor, but they have identified what are their rights in the kingdom of God. Bible says that the thief will return seven times the things that he has stolen. Jesus tells John to write the things that he has seen. Though those that are, those that are to take place, those that are, sorry, those that are to take place after these years. And as for the mystery of the seven stars and the lampstands, he reveals what they mean. And so this is just Jesus establishing of his omniscience and omnipotence in the fact that he has already figured out all that will take place way before it happens. Nothing takes our God by surprise. So even though the enemy has devised, even though he has planned, but that God is already many steps ahead of him. Does that encourage us? 
does that give us comfort? The vision of the Son of Man. The integrity of his character is enough for his church. Lord, grace your people to have a vision of you, to turn their eyes to you, O God. That you promise that when they do, your face will shine brighter like the sun for them. They won't help themselves but to behold of you in all that they do. That your voice will be louder than anything else. You will bring us, bring us to the realms of conquest to experience the authority of your kingship and your high priesthood in your compassion and the fact that you identify in a weakness and you pray for us. And the Lord, you shall guide us by your wisdom. Even as we trust that your sword and your eyes that see through every untruth will change us and rectify us, O oh God. So we trust the Lord that these words will be impactful to the glory of God and the joy of your church. Amen.